Preaching today from 1 Peter chapter 3, reading verses 18 through 22. That's on page 1392 in the Bibles in your seats. Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 18. Listen to God's word. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. By way of introduction, I want to comment that this passage has several difficult things to understand. In fact, uh, many scholars have said that this is probably the hardest passage in the entire Bible to interpret. So, With that in mind, I want to call attention to two guidelines when we read hard things in the Bible, just to help you see how I'm going to approach this passage. And this is just by way of introduction. The first thing that we ought to do is to to read a passage and always interpret it in its immediate context. In other words, the words that are surrounding it, the letter here that Peter writes. So... In this case, I want to remind you of what has come just before. Peter has said that even if you suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. And that it is better, if it's the will of God, if you suffer for doing right. That you suffer uh, for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18 then starts with the word for, or in some translations, because... And this provides the necessary connection to what's gone before. It means you need to read what's going on here, this difficult passage, in light of that suffering that you are going through, what Peter is writing about. The second thing is to remember that you always need to understand a small passage in light of the larger teaching of, of the entirety of the Bible. There are some things that are less clear in certain portions of the Bible, and you can understand them better when you see them through the lens of what is more clear and bring what is more clear to bear on those things that are less clear. Those two principles will will help you and uh, actually guard you from descending into some really wild speculation about what this passage is talking about. For instance, it's possible to take a phrase like Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison and to conclude some very uh, 
uh, very strange things. In fact, there are, uh, are lots of different interpretations that people have come, come up with. I'm not going to go into detail on those, uh, those many different interpretations. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the fruit of, of study the fruit of these principles, and to tell you my convictions about what they do say. And I want you to understand them in light of that suffering that you go through. So to guide your understanding, the back of your bulletin, you can see an outline there, and a summary statement. Suffering cannot separate you from God. For Christ died for sins once for all to bring you to God. I'll show you how this passage uh, runs through this outline. The first point that I'll make is that Christ also suffered unjustly. And I say also because what has gone just before saying that you have suffered unjustly. And he goes on to say, you can count that a blessing. You can find the blessing of God in that. For Jesus has also suffered unjustly. That helps us to then to see how Peter is moving on to show you how Jesus Christ sustained you in your suffering because he has suffered as well. And even more importantly, he has suffered for you. Suffered for you in a redeeming way. The just or the unjust. We have to pause here and just observe that Christ did indeed also suffer unjustly. In the entire history of humanity, it must be said that Jesus and Jesus alone has has been the only one who has suffered unjustly. For he did no wrong in this life. He is the incarnate Son of God, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, never having sinned. And yet, even he suffered at the hands of unrighteous men. The Pharisees conspired to arrest him. They brought false charges against him. In other words, they lied about him. They condemned him to death without any reason. They had him crucified in the most painful and shameful way that was available to them, the crucifixion of the cross. But in his suffering and death, Jesus accomplished the greatest thing possible. He accomplished redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. When he died on the cross, he took upon himself our sins, and he suffered the righteous wrath of God that is deserving, that we are deserving of. Elsewhere, the New Testament tells us that even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us. He became sin for us. This is Jesus, the righteous one becoming sin, and bearing the wrath of the Father for us. And so he suffered the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. In that, you can see there 
is a mysterious providence of God, a mysterious purpose that led Jesus through his suffering, even setting his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen, setting his face towards that suffering so that he might accomplish the will of God, our redemption. Here, Peter also touches on the mystery of the incarnation. He says that Jesus suffered in the flesh. And it's good for us to be reminded here that the very necessity of God the Son to come in the flesh for us. Because it was absolutely necessary that our representative be fully man as well as fully God. It was only man that could represent us. A sheep would not suffice. The Israelites knew this. For years they had been killing sheep as a symbol of appeasing God's wrath. But there was this anticipation all through the Old Testament that the Lamb of God would come. And that Lamb is Jesus. So it was absolutely necessary that God come in the flesh. And our Redeemer has to be God in order to pay fully the penalty for our sins. And we know that Jesus' death did satisfy that payment because God has vindicated him by the resurrection, which Peter also mentions. He was made alive by the Spirit, confirming the Father's approval of Jesus' work for us. Well, the effect is this, that Christ has also suffered, and we can find in him an example, an advocate, a redeemer. That means that when you suffer, that trial should remind you that Jesus also suffered. And that lifts your eyes to him and, and encourages you by faith to lift your eyes to Jesus who has suffered for you. He enables you to, uh, to lift your heart to him and to, uh, uh, to find courage to face that trial that you are going to. The Holy Spirit enabled the Son to carry the literal cross to face the judgment of the Father. And the Holy Spirit enables you to also take up your cross to follow him. In this passage then, and in Jesus Christ, you find a theology of suffering, a theology that lays out a pattern, and that pattern is that first comes suffering and then comes glory. So follow him who suffered for you. Follow him in that pattern in your own suffering. Know that Glory awaits you after this suffering. This will help you then to lead into these next phrases where there are some of the most difficult aspects of this passage. By whom, that is by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Peter sets out before us how Jesus suffered for you, how he is then conquered all of his and our enemies. 
And it's that point that uh, I'm going to, uh, to move to on the outline here. And I'm going to do it by, by answering a series of questions that often arise about this, this passage. And I'll get to those questions in just a moment. As I said, I intend to, uh, to focus on my own convictions on, on this interpretation that means I won't make an exhaustive explanation as to all the various ideas that have come up about it. Uh, that's a suitable study, but it's suitable for something else, like a Sunday school class or a commentary. For the sake of preaching, remember the main idea here that Peter's getting at. is communicating that you suffer in this life, and that suffering is by the will of God, and that within that suffering that you may find God's blessing, and specifically that suffering cannot separate you from God, for Christ has died for your sins to bring you to God. That light, then, think of what Peter does next by raising an example in the Old Testament. He goes back in history to a point where, from one perspective, it seems like The wicked are winning. It seems like those good creations that God had had made, man and women, men and women, those that had walked and talked with him in the Garden of Eden, that they had fallen away, and that the entirety of that human race is marked not by righteousness, but by wickedness. And so Peter talks about this. He talks about the days of Noah and the worldwide flood. And I want you to hear how how those people are described in Genesis 6. I read it earlier. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That sounds like a storyline where the wicked are winning, doesn't it? And the text says that the Lord determined to punish wickedness by sending a flood to destroy everything. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So rather than the wicked winning... The flood demonstrates how God rules even over the wicked. And he brings his judgment on the entirety of the world to demonstrate his power and his judgment against sin. And that judgment is only a mere foreshadowing and a forewarning of the ultimate judgment, which will come at the end of all time. For Jesus, when he returns, will judge between the righteous and the wicked and will destroy and judge forever the wicked in hell. The flood proclaims that God is holy. It proclaims that he rules over all mankind. It proclaims that he is to be feared and to be worshipped and that even though the wicked seem to rule the day, that God still rules on high. To those who were suffering in Peter's day, this 
is a message that they needed to hear. To you who are suffering, this is a message that you need to hear. That God does indeed rule over all things. Even when you suffer for doing doing what is good. Even when it seems like the wicked are winning the day. They are not. For the Lord reigns over all things. Peter goes on with this example from history to confront this evil. God sent a messenger. That messenger is the spirit of Christ who preached through his servant Noah. Here in this letter, Peter identifies the preaching as being the preaching of Christ himself by the Holy Spirit who preached to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. The second letter that Peter writes gives a maybe more specific uh, identification. In his second letter, Peter says that, that God raised up Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And here in the first letter, It says that this is a demonstration of the divine forbearance for wickedness. By that it means that that he did not leave the guilty, he did not leave the wicked without a word. He warned them through Noah's preaching over and over and over again. Do you remember how long it took for the ark to be built? 100 years. And all during that time, the Lord was beseeching the wicked to repent, warning them of the judgment to come. Not only of the physical judgment, but the ultimate judgment. And that divine forbearance was the spirit of Christ proclaiming the gospel, really, proclaiming the gospel through Noah to those who would not listen. So here again what Peter says about this. He says that Christ has suffered, uh, by whom also he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Let me answer a series of questions uh, that often come up in the context of this passage. First question is, to whom did Jesus preach? Answer, to that wicked generation during the days of Noah. They were disobedient. They were those who the intents of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Second question, how did he preach? Answer, through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, a preacher of righteousness, who held out the righteousness and holiness of God to a wicked generation, who warned them of the wrath to come, who told them the consequences of their sins, both in this life and the life to come. Third question, then who are the spirits in prison? 
And here is one of the uh, opinions is that there was a preaching of Jesus to spirits in hell. And we would say, uh, or the, the convictions that I'm bringing to this, both by the immediate context and the larger context, we would say that there is no second chance for repentance for those in hell. So an evangelizing of souls in hell is not for the purpose of of conversion. We could also say that uh, the preaching to lost souls is a uh, can be understood instead to be referring to the current state of those who heard and rejected Noah's preaching. So Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah to the disobedient in his day, who are now currently spirits in prison, demonstrating Jesus' judgment against the wicked. There is even a a sense of that proclamation of judgment that comes through in the words that Peter uses. But God is gracious. He was and is control, then and now. He was gracious then, he is gracious now. He was gracious then in the days of Noah by by his long-sufferingness, even with the wicked of that day to tell them the message and to warn them. But he is uh, is gracious as well today by proclaiming that there is a way of escape from that judgment to come. God was gracious to save Noah from that generation through the flood. Thus Peter calls the flood both a judgment and a deliverance. It's interesting that Peter doesn't say that, that Noah was delivered from the waters, but that he was delivered through the waters, that God used that judgment to bring Noah out to the other side of the flood and to establish in him that line of the covenant. Well, that brings us to another question. What did the flood, the flood foreshadow? Answered that a little bit already. First, it foreshadows the judgment of God. But secondly, it also speaks of prefiguring um, the deliverance that God would give to Noah and would give to us through a Redeemer, through Jesus Christ. So we have both the warning of the destruction of the world in the flood, the warning of the judgment to come of hell, the final judgment, but also that prefiguring of the grace that God gave to Noah, prefiguring the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Which leads us to a next question. So what does baptism signify? And why does, why does Peter bring that in here? And there is a a connection here because baptism has 
has a, a, a watery application. There is also a connection to the judgment of God that is part of the flood, which is also signified in the, the need for a washing away of our own sin that deserves the judgment of God. And it also prefigures the deliverance, deliverance of Noah through these waters, a deliverance that we have through the waters of baptism. And it is such a connection then to Jesus Christ that Peter connects those two in a way that might startle your ears, and that's why it's a question. He literally says that baptism now saves you. And here we would say that needs to be heard in the context of the greater teaching of Scripture, that there is only one way of salvation, that the washing of water cannot wash away your sins, that it is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that you may be saved. It is only by faith in him that you can be saved from that eternal judgment that is warned against. And so Peter uses baptism, much like he's using the flood, as a sign of the judgment of God against sin and a sign of the deliverance that we have. And we receive that not because of our own goodness or of our own cleanness, but by a confession of faith. Uh, Peter calls it here a, a, a good conscience that is voiced to God. In this way, baptism is a sign of what Jesus has done, and it's a, it's a seal that we belong to him and are indeed delivered from the wrath to come. Peter closes this section by pointing out that our Savior has risen from the dead and has ascended into heaven, and there that he is seated at the right hand of God on high, seated to rule over all things. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. I want you to connect this again to that to, to what Peter's saying about the flood. Remember, that uh, the flood seems like, like the wicked are winning. But God demonstrates that he rules. His judgment is a sign that he rules over the created world and he rules over the wicked. And his judgment is a sign of that authority. Well, Jesus himself has been granted authority to judge. And his death may look like a victory for Satan. His suffering may seem like it is, uh, it is the undoing of all of, of God's plans. But it is not. It is, it is completely different. In fact, it was and it is the greatest victory of Jesus Christ. He has an accomplished redemption. And having satisfied God's judgment, he was raised he has ascended on high and is ruling now over all things. I like the way that one commentary puts it, that uh, whatever the uncertainties in this passage, and there are some, 
Whatever the uncertainties, the main theme is clear. When Jesus suffered unjustly, God vindicated him. And he will vindicate you too. He will vindicate you too. Peter wants you to know that even if you suffer for doing what is good, even if you die for the faith, God will raise you up at the last day. He will vindicate you, even as he vindicated Christ. So remember this passage in the context of what has gone before. Even if you suffer for doing what is good, you are blessed. When you suffer, pray that you will understand those blessings. Pray that you will will see how, how you are united to Jesus Christ. Pray that you will see how Jesus' suffering provides you an example, and more than an example, see how his suffering was for you. Because Jesus has triumphed over sin. He did that by his death on the cross, and he did that for you who believe in him. He has triumphed over death itself by his resurrection for you. He has been gracious to you, even as he was with Noah. And as he delivered Noah, he will deliver you. He has ascended on high and is seated to rule over all things for you. As you suffer, I pray that by faith you would look to Jesus who has suffered for you. Before we leave this passage, I need to give an attached warning that this passage gives. For Jesus did suffer the just for the unjust to bring us to God. But he has also been given the authority to judge all things. And just as surely as he judged the world in the days of Noah, Jesus will indeed come again to judge all those individuals who have been created throughout all of time. will judge the living and the dead, separating out the just from the unjust, those who believe in him and those who don't. And just as God was divinely patient in the days of Noah, just as he sent his messenger with the spirit of Christ to warn of the wrath to come, by that same spirit of Christ, I warn you of that wrath to come. It is a fearful judgment of God. And like those people in the days of Noah who heard Noah over and over again and refused to listen to him. I wonder what they were thinking. The crazy old Noah. There's crazy Noah coming again to tell us of a, of a flood. Who's ever heard of such a thing? 
Maybe you are hearing me today and think, well, there goes crazy pastor telling me of the fiery judgment of God in hell. What's he talking about? Do not be deceived by God's patience. He will judge. He is ruling even now. When you die, it is too late. For there is no second chance in hell to believe. This is the time to hear the gospel. Repent. Ask Jesus to be your savior. This is the time. Put it all together. For those of you trusting in Christ... Suffering cannot separate you from God. For Christ died for your sins, once for all, to bring you to God. What a blessing that is to know. Let's pray before him. O Lord God, as we hear the warning of this passage, we bow before you and confess that there is only one Savior for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, O God, that you would break through any doubts that we have. pray that you would break through any uh, hard-hearted rejections of that message. I pray that we would hear that warning today, that fearful and awesome warning of the judgment to come that we would flee it by coming to Jesus Christ. And having come to Jesus, I pray that you would minister to us. For Lord, we do suffer in this world. We suffer a variety of trials and tribulations, some that are brought upon us just because we live in a fallen world, some that are brought upon us as uh, as the chastisements for our sin, and some brought upon us just because the world hates you. Lord, I pray that when we suffer, that by your Spirit, you would lift our eyes to Jesus, our Redeemer. That we would know that you are ruling even over the floodwaters of this world, even when it appears that the wicked are winning. May we know that Jesus is our victorious Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've sung sung of God's ruling over the floodwaters. We'll sing as well now of the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority over all things. Psalm 110b speaks of how the Lord said to my Lord, that's the Father said to the Son, sit on my right hand till I make all of your foes a footstool underneath your feet. And it speaks of those who are willing in his day of power. And I pray that that would be you. I pray that you would confess this as you sing it, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and my only trust to deliver me from the judgment to come. Let's sing Psalm 110b. Please stand to sing.